Well, beloved, I'm, uh, I am really excited about what we will begin together this morning. You can open your Bibles to Paul's letter to the Ephesians. As we get started on this really great letter, there's some kind of preliminary information that we will profit from. This morning will be basically an overview of the book, just to try to get ourselves oriented in this really great letter. I have been looking forward to preaching from this book of Ephesians to you. I've been looking forward to studying this book of Ephesians myself for quite some time now. Years ago, when I began here preaching regularly, I had some ideas of some things that I wanted to accomplish, different books that I wanted to study together with you so that I would learn myself and so that we would learn together some what I believed were very important theological foundations for the Christian life. We began many years ago in John's Gospel, and we spent a number of years working our way through God's John's Gospel, where we encountered Jesus Christ in all of his sovereign glory. It was really a delightful study in John's Gospel. We followed our study in John's Gospel with a study of the Gospel itself in the book of Romans. We spent years working our way through the book of Romans, coming face to face with this Incredible power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And we grew immensely in our love for Christ and our understanding of Jesus and what he had done for us through this gospel. We then studied Matthew's gospel so that we might understand the kingdom. A lot of confusion today about the kingdom of God. What is it? Where is it? Are we in it? Is it to come? What is that all about? And so we spent a number of years working through Matthew's gospel and coming face to face with the kingdom of God. We learn that the kingdom of God is a, is a physical kingdom entered through a spiritual door of the new birth. As Jesus said to Nicodemus, unless you be born again, you can't even see the kingdom of God, let alone enter it. And it was a wonderful study. And so we arrive now at the book of Ephesians because the book of Ephesians is about the church. It's about the church. And there's much about the church that we need to learn. This is the church of God, bought by the precious blood of his own son. This is the apple of God's eye. This is the treasure of God, the church of Jesus Christ. And so I'm really, really looking forward as we study Ephesians together and and learning from this most amazing letter. It's only six chapters long, but it is incredibly profound. It is dense. 
almost word by word in certain places are going to require us to, to stop and, and think and, and examine the scriptures together so we might understand what it is that Paul is saying. Probably only the book of Romans can match this book in terms of its spiritual impact on, on Christianity, on the, on the Christian church through the centuries. And so there's a lot we're going to learn here. And I'm excited about it. Now this is an unusual letter. This is the most general of all of Paul's letters. There are certain features about this letter that make it stand out from Paul's other correspondence. For example, there is only one associate mentioned in this letter. There's really only one name that comes up, and it's the name Tychicus, and he appears at the end of the letter, and he is the one who delivered this letter. But that's unusual. Normally, Paul begins his, his correspondence, his letters, by, by naming several other ministry associates, Timothy, Silas, whatever, that are, that are working with him and, and writing and greeting this particular church. But here, nobody. Nobody. This letter also stands out because there's no greeting. As you, as you look here at the beginning of the letter, there's, there's normally a, a Pauline greeting here to, to certain individuals or whatever, and it may be at the beginning or maybe at the end of the letter, but, but in this case, there's no greeting at all. He doesn't call out to anybody. He doesn't thank anyone in this letter. He doesn't review any of his travel plans in this letter. So this is, a, this is a very interesting letter. It's a very general kind of letter. There's not a, it's not personal. It's not a personal letter. It's a very general letter. Now, Paul wrote this letter sometime around A.D. 62 during his first Roman imprisonment where he spent two years in Rome under house arrest, Acts chapter 28, verses 30 and 31, speak of that time. You remember Paul returned to Jerusalem bringing a collection for the saints there and and then he was arrested on trumped up charges and and all of that and he spent time in, in Caesarea Maritima where he was awaiting various trial. And eventually they were going to turn him over to the Jews who were already had, had committed themselves to murdering him. And he appealed to Caesar. And so having, being a Roman citizen, they, they were obligated to turn him over to Caesar to, to, for a hearing, for a fair trial. Paul exercised his right as a Roman citizen to appeal to Caesar, and he did. And so Paul was taken as a prisoner to Rome. The end of the book of Acts covers all of that. And there we're told... He spent two years under house arrest, and, and he had um, certain freedoms. Certain associates were able to come and minister to him, and, and he had opportunity to even preach the gospel to the, to the guards there in the prison. So he was confined, to be sure, but it wasn't a dungeon. He's imprisoned later, at the end of his life. Second Timothy speaks of that, and that's in a dungeon. And that was, a, that was literally a hole in the ground, and it was a terrible, awful place. 
While spending these two years in the Roman imprisonment, Paul wrote four letters that, that make a part of the New Testament. The first that we have here is this letter to the Ephesians. He also wrote Colossians and Philemon. And those three letters in that sequence, in that order, that's the order they were written, were hand-delivered by Tychicus to those two churches and an individual. So Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon. He wrote a fourth letter, Philippians. That was the fourth and last of the letters of the Roman, that Roman captivity, that Roman uh, imprisonment there. And that was uh, hand-carried by Epaphroditus, according to Philippians 2.25. So this letter bears the name in your Bible, the letter of Paul to the Ephesians. Directed to the city of Ephesus. Ephesus was no insignificant city in the ancient world. It was a very large and important city. It was the capital of the Roman province of Asia, which would be today western, basically southwestern Turkey. But it was the capital of the the Roman province of Asia. So it was a very important city. The population estimates for the city in that day, it would be the greater metropolitan area, were somewhere between 250 and 500,000 individuals. So that is a very large city by ancient standards. In fact, they have uncovered ruins of the theater there. You remember earlier when we read Acts 19 and they were gathered in the theater, right? And, and for two hours they, they just kept yelling, Great is Artemis to the Ephesians. It must have been quite a scene. But as they have uncovered the remains of that theater, it, it seated, they estimate, about 24,000 people. So that would be a small football stadium. It was a very important city politically, educationally. It was, a, it was a commercial center. It ranked right up there with the, with the major cities of the ancient world. Probably best known for a temple. For there was built the temple of Artemis or the Roman uh, Diana. Okay, the same Artemis Greek, Diana Roman who was uh, this goddess, and and this, this magnificent temple to her was considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. So you had a ton of money, and you wanted to see the, you know, the, the greatest architecture of the ancient world, you would travel to Ephesus to see the temple of Artemis. That would be one of your stops. A really amazing place speaks of the wealth of that particular area, the city of Ephesus. Very strategic place. Now, what do we know about the church here in Ephesus? Well, we know some things just by putting together the pieces of the New Testament. So we know, for example, that the church was, was originally founded by Priscilla and Aquila in AD 52, 
during Paul's second missionary journey. It was near the end of Paul's second missionary journey. And in fact, keep your finger or thumb or something or other there in, in uh, Ephesians and just flip over to Acts chapter 18. You can see that. Priscilla and Aquila were Paul's ministry partners, very near and dear to his heart, very strategic couple, very, very much used of God. Verse 18 of Acts 18, Paul remained many days longer, this was in Corinth, and took leave of the brethren put out to sea for Syria, and with him were Priscilla and Aquila. In Sancria he had his hair cut, for he was keeping a vow. Sancria it was is the eastern port of the of the city of Corinth, and he came. They came to Ephesus, and he left them there. Down to verse twenty four. Now a Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man, came to Ephesus, and he was mighty in the scriptures. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, being acquainted only with the baptism of John. And he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wanted to go across to Achaia, the brethren encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace." For he was powerfully refuting, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. Over in chapter 20 and verse 31. Actually, no, I don't want to turn you there yet. What do I want to do? I want to look at verses, um, well, it's okay, we're fine. So this church in Ephesus was founded by Priscilla and Aquila. In 1 Corinthians 16, 19, I'm not going to turn there, but 1 Corinthians 16, 19 indicates that the church met in their home. So the church at Ephesus met in the home of Priscilla and Aquila, okay, this church. They were, I would suggest to you, the original pastoral couple for this church. From A.D. 53 to 55, so for a period of three years, according to Acts 19, Paul pastored the church. So in its early fledgling days, it was Priscilla and Aquila, but eventually Paul himself returned to the church here in his third missionary journey. And he pastors it. Now in chapter 20, verse 31, where he says to them there, be on the alert, remember that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. So Paul himself pastored the church, perhaps because of its growing size and significance. And you remember we read here in Acts 19 that he taught for two years in the, uh, the school of the tyrant. Okay, it's, um, It says the school of Tyrannus, but uh, literally that's the school of the tyrant. I don't believe that was his first name, okay? I think that's probably likely the name his students gave him, okay? But uh, Paul taught there in this theological school for a couple of years, instructing the, the believers there 
because of the strategic nature of this city, those instructed believers were able to go out to other areas and, and push the gospel further out into the boundaries of what we know as modern-day Turkey. In fact, the church at Colossae, Paul himself had never even visited, although it was considered part of his church-planting responsibilities likely because it had been planted and pastored by graduates of the school of the tyrant. Okay? So that's kind of how all that fits together. So, so Paul pastors this church, and, and in pastoring this church here in Ephesus, according to Acts 19, he is, he is doing spiritual battle with the occult. This is the, temp, the, the home of the temple of Diana, or the temple of Artemis. This is, a, this is a, a people that is steeped in the occult. And the Spirit of God moves so powerfully among them, as Acts 19 uh, points out here, that, that uh, many of them begin to burn their, their magic books, as it were. And um, they counted up the price, and it was 50,000 pieces of silver. So it was a very significant library, perhaps $5 million in today's uh, U.S. dollar, uh, of, of books about the occult. So you're talking about a very serious stronghold of Satan that Paul himself does personal battle with for a period of about three years. A decade later, Paul sends Timothy back to pastor that church, about A.D. 65 to 67, and to there to counter false teachers that have grown up within this congregation. Specifically, he calls out in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 and 20, two of them, Hymenaeus and Alexander. We can't prove this, but, but likely, I think, that these were two elders that Paul had previously warned of in Acts chapter 20. You remember in Acts chapter 20, he, he warned them that upon my departure, savage wolves will arise among you and seek to draw disciples after themselves. And so that's evidently exactly what happened. Now, I don't know whether he, he had Hymenaeus and Alexander in mind when he's preaching that sermon, you know, and he's looking them in the eyeball and, and so forth, or whether he just knew that, you know, that, that, that Satan was going to try to destroy the work here. But in either case, it's gotten so bad that he has to send Timothy back to pastor this church and to, and to, to combat the, the heresy of these false teachers that have arisen within the congregation. Thirty years later, Jesus Christ himself writes a letter to this church, and he does it through the hand of the, the aged Apostle John. This is now somewhere probably around AD 95, 96, something like that. And Christ, right, appears to John in the book of Revelation, and he, he commands him to write letters to seven churches. And the first church to be addressed is the church at Ephesus. And there what Jesus says to them is that basically you have, you have lost your first love. You have departed from me. So this is an important church, very important church.
Now, without getting lost here, but at least acknowledging the reality of it, you will, you will notice if you look in your Bible at Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 1, if you have any kind of study Bible, you will notice that the expression where it says to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus, the at Ephesus should have some kind of a footnote attached to it. There should be something here to, to designate the reality that this, this expression at Ephesus does not appear in three of the oldest and best manuscripts. Okay? And that's interesting. Because it relates to the, to the question of who was this letter actually written to? Who was the audience? And there are, there are basically two schools of thought. And again, I won't get lost here, but just so you, you know, as we get started here, some things you probably ought to be aware of. One school of thought is that this is a very general letter, which it clearly is, and that it was written by Paul, not specifically to the church at Ephesus, but to the churches of that general area. And so it was blank. It was to the saints who are at blank. And so that Tychicus would bring this letter, and then when he arrived, a copy of it would be made or, or whatnot, and, and, the, and the local church's name would be inserted into it. And so the letter would be to them. And then it would go to another, and then it would go to another, and then it would go to another. This, this kind of idea that it's, you know, a, a circular sort of letter, not specific. Now, there's some interesting internal evidence to support this contention. And that is that knowing Paul has spent three years in Ephesus, and, and, and he says in Acts 20, right, I labored among you with tears, and, and I was in your homes, and I preached you publicly and privately, and so forth. And he just kind of speaks of his intimacy with them. And, they, and the elders there are weeping when he leaves, and so forth. And so it's hard to understand how in, for example, chapter 1 and verse 15, that appears like that Paul only knows about their faith through hearsay. Look at verse 15, chapter 1. For this reason I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you and your love for all the saints. And take a look at chapter 4 and verse 21. Pick it up, verse 20, it says, But you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as the truth is in Jesus. So there's some indication that it appears that Paul doesn't know them real well, and that his knowledge of them is is based on hearsay. Beyond that, it appears that their knowledge of him is based on hearsay. So chapter 3, verse 2. I'll pick it up in verse 1. It says, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace which was given to me for you. Again, it's just it's hard to reconcile that with a congregation with which he had spent, according to Acts, so much time, invested so much of his blood, sweat, and tears. So these are reasons why People believe that this was what they would call a circular letter, not specifically addressed to one congregation in Ephesus. 
Now, the importance of that is probably as much as anything that uh, if that's true, then we can't really look to uh, the situation in Ephesus to, to find specific understanding of the issues that Paul's talking about. We can't just say, well, you know, this was going on in Ephesus, and so he's obviously addressing such and such, if the letter is not addressed just to them. You understand what I'm saying? Okay, so if it's a broader letter, then, then we're going to have to look more broadly for what are the underlying um, problems that Paul's addressing in this letter. And that will, we'll bring that out as we study it together. Now, there, the other view, the traditional view, the view that, that has been held uh, most by the greatest number of people for the longest period of time uh, in the church, recalled the traditional view, is that this letter is addressed to the church at Ephesus, that it, is, that it is a letter to the church at Ephesus. And the majority of the, of the manuscripts by number contain the, the, the expression at Ephesus. Okay? So the majority of the evidence says it's here and it is the traditional viewpoint. Now it's possible there's, there's maybe a, a way to bring the two together just with the idea that it, that it you know, was written to them at Ephesus but with an idea that it was going to be circulated. And that uh, because it was written to them at Ephesus, you know, that the, the name belonged in there, or the, flipped from the other side is that it, that it at Ephesus was inserted in there because Ephesus was the, was the preeminent city of that particular area, and it just kind of attached to it. So uh, we can't say for sure. We can't say for sure. I was going to read it to you this morning. But I'm not going to do that this morning. I think I'll do that next week, just to read it to you. Because I think it would be really instructive to hear it. Because usually when we study the Scriptures or we study the New Testament, we, we sort of break it down, don't we? You know, we look at little passages or even words, which is good and important, and I'm sure they did too. But, but when they initially received this, it would have hit them full. So, so that we can experience that too. I think next week I'll read it to you, but not this week. What I want to do with you this week is, is I want to outline it for you. I want to outline the book for you in, in a very simple form, and I want to do it in something that I believe is memorable and, and, and drives at the big ideas in this book. And what I'm hoping is, is, is that this will be helpful to you to, to be able to get your arms around this so you kind of know where we're going. In this study. So I, I, I'm going to do this in a form of a question and then an outline answer. So the question is this. What is the church? What is the church? Answer. The church is broken individuals chosen by God. The church is broken individuals chosen by God. Chapter 1, verses 3 through 23. Blessed be, verse 3, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. What is the church? 
The church is broken individuals chosen by God. Chapter 1, verses 3 through 23. Broken individuals chosen by God. Secondly, what is the church? The church is broken individuals chosen by God, made alive in Christ. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Verse 1, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Verse 5, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. He made us alive together with Christ. So what is the church? The church is broken individuals chosen by God, chapter 1, 3 to 23, made alive in Christ, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Third, formed into a new humanity, chosen by God, made alive in Christ, formed into a new humanity, chapter 2, verses 11 through chapter 3, Verse 21, formed into a new humanity. Notice verse 13 and 14, chapter 2. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. Chapter 3, verse 6. To be specific, as Paul reveals this mystery that has been only given to him, to be specific that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Formed into a new humanity. The ancient divisions of Jew-Gentile, which marked the world and all of its hostility and all of its violence and all of its accumulated hatred and all of the, of the wrongs that have been done one side to the other, all of that, the gospel overwhelms and, and through the gospel takes individuals that were once at each other's throat and forms them together into a new humanity, the body of Christ, the church. We are the remnant. We are the new humanity. You are either dead in Adam or you are alive in Christ, the new humanity. Chapter 2, 11 through chapter 3, verse 21. What is the church? The church is broken individuals chosen by God, made alive in Christ, formed into a new humanity, forth dwelling together in unity. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. Dwelling together in unity. Chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. 
There is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And there'll be, there'll be the spiritual work among you, and it will continue until, verse 13, we all attain the unity of the faith. That we all attain the unity of the faith. Till we, till we grow up together in Christ. So what is the church? The church is broken individuals chosen by God, made alive in Christ, formed into a new humanity, dwelling together in unity. Dwelling together in unity. With a transformed morality. A transformed morality. Beginning in verse 17 of chapter 4 and running all the way through verse 14 of chapter 5. A transformed morality. Chapter 5, verse 8, probably says it as well as any. Or 7 and 8. Therefore do not be partakers with them, for you were formerly darkness... But now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. There is a, there is a transformed morality. There is a, this, this new humanity that is dwelling in unity is living out a morality that is, that is otherworldly. It is separate from the old world. A transformed morality. What is the church? The church is broken individuals, chosen by God, made alive in Christ, formed into a new humanity, dwelling together in unity, transformed morally. Sixth, living life wisely. Living life wisely. Verse 15 of chapter 5. This is 5.15 to 6.9. Living life wisely. Therefore, 5.15, be careful how you walk. That's just a metaphor for living. Be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise. Live wisely. Well, what does wise living look like? Wise living looks like not being drunk with wine, which is dissipation, right? But being filled with the Spirit. That's wise living. Exhorting one another, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Always giving thankfulness or thanksgiving in your heart to the Lord Jesus and being subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Wives to their husbands. Husbands loving your wives as Christ loves the church and gave himself up for her. Children in obedience to your parents. Fathers, not frustrating and exasperating your children by being heavy-handed with them. Slaves and, and masters or contemporized employers and employees living together one with another respectfully, wisely, not taking advantage of one another. This is what it means to live with wisdom. To live with wisdom is to live God's way. And so in all of these relationships, and this covers every single relationship that you and I find ourselves in. We are, we are here in these pages, in, in this page, page and a half, whatever it is, right, of all kinds of relationships. 
We're together with one another in the body here. We're a husband. We're a wife. We're a, we're a parent. We're a child. We're an employer. We're an employee. We're all together in this. Most of us are in multiple roles. So we need to live wisely in these things. So what is the church? The church is broken individuals, chosen by God, made alive in Christ, formed into a new humanity, dwelling together in unity, transformed morally, living wisely. And finally, battling spiritually. Battling spiritually, 6, 10 to 20. Verse 12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. It may look like our battle is fought on the horizontal with people that are, that are you know, against us. But ultimately, what Paul says is our battle is in the spiritual realm. And certainly the occult and one's attachment or former attachment to the occult would make that very clear now, wouldn't it? What is the church? The church is broken individuals chosen by God, made alive in Christ, formed into a new humanity, dwelling together in unity, transformed morally, living life wisely, battling spiritually. That is the church. And that's an outline of this book. So, with the time that remains, let's look at a couple of lessons we can take home from our introduction. How's that? So this doesn't just remain purely an academic introduction, although it's far from academic. But let me suggest to you at least four lessons we can take away from this morning. Number one, God accomplishes his purposes through providence. God accomplishes his purposes through providence. What do I mean by that? What I mean by that is Paul wanted to go to Rome. He made it very clear. Acts chapter 19, verse 21, he speaks of a desire to go to Rome, Rome, the letter to Rome, the Romans. Romans chapter 1, verse 13, Romans chapter 15, verse 23, Paul says, I want to go to Rome, I plan to go to Rome, I desire to go to Rome. And his desire is, in the providence of God, finally realized he gets to Rome. He just doesn't get there the way that he thought he was going to get there, right? He goes in chains. His his ocean passage is paid courtesy of the Roman government. So what what I'm saying for this is, is is that God works out his great and perfect plan. Look at Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 11. Where Paul says, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to his purpose who works all things after the counsel of his will. He works all things after the counsel of his will, which means is that God doesn't take counsel with anybody else. He doesn't say, hey, you know, what do you think about this? What would you do if you were me? He works in his providence and he accomplishes his purposes. Paul wanted to go to Rome. God wanted Paul to go to Rome. 
Paul wanted to go to Rome one way. God said, you're going to Rome this way. We could even apply uh, the words of Joseph from Genesis 50, right? You meant it for evil and God meant it for good. To deliver many alive. Okay? First lesson that I can walk away from in all of this is that God accomplishes his purposes through providence. Maybe I'll add this to the praise of his glory, huh? To the praise of his glory. Secondly, God reaches the heart through the head. Second lesson, God reaches the heart through the head. Now, if he has our heart, he has our hands. Okay? And, the, and the reason is because we all do what we, what we desire to do, what we love, what we want. That's what we do. So he, he, he changes behavior. That's kind of where I'm driving with this, by changing our desires. And he changes our desires, or, or to, to use the expression of Jonathan Edwards, our affections. And he changes our affections by changing our thinking. Romans chapter 12 and and verses 1 and 2, right? Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed, how? By the renewing of your mind. And so, God changes me and he changes you by changing how we think about the world and about him. Basically bringing our thinking in line with his So that we begin to understand reality the way it is, not how we mistakenly think it is or feel like it ought to be. This lesson plays out in how this book is put together, the structure of this book. Chapters 1, 2, and 3 are about doctrine. They are doctrinal. They They are deep and profound in their teaching. And then chapters 4, 5, and 6 are about duty. What, how we're supposed to live in light of this truth. You could say it's the indicative before the imperative. It's the statement of reality before the command to do something or to stop doing something. Okay? That's important. God reaches the heart through the head. This is Paul's methodology. This is God's methodology. And the significance of all of this is that it really affects the way, or should affect the way, that we do evangelism. The way we share the gospel with people. We don't appeal to them to, to do something, or stop doing something, or believe on Jesus until they understand who Jesus is, and what their problem is, and why Jesus is the only hope they have. So it begins with doctrine, and then it comes to duty. Right? Paul is now, or Paul says that God is now declaring to all men everywhere, right, that, that they must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. But only after you know who Jesus Christ is and what he has done. So it affects evangelism. It, it affects discipleship. This is how we make disciples. This is how we make disciples. We make disciples not by telling them, hey, don't do that anymore. Well, why not? Well, because, uh, you know, people will think you're. Not very Christian if you do that. No, we, we go for the head. 
with the character of God, and then the Spirit uses his word to change the heart, and as he changes the heart and the affections, then people say, hey, you know what? I don't think I should be doing that anymore. Well, how come? Well, because that's not who God is. And, I, and I've been saved, and I'm a child of God, and I'm, and I'm a son. I've been adopted as a son. And, and so that means I, I'm going to emulate my father. And my father doesn't do that sort of stuff. And my father doesn't talk like that. And my father doesn't think like that. All the difference in the world. It affects our parenting, which is really just disciple-making at home. You reach the heart of your children through their head. You teach them the truth. You pray for the Spirit of God to work on them and in them. And it even affects how we do self-counsel. That is, how do we bring ourselves back to reality? Have you ever talked yourself off the limb before? Or off the ledge, you know, in from the limb, right? Have you ever done that? I have. I start thinking crazy things and, uh, you know, just ridiculous, faithless kinds of thoughts. I need, a, I need a dose of the truth. I preach the gospel to myself. I preach the truth to myself. And then all of a sudden I begin to feel better. It's truth that is the engine that pulls the train, the, the feelings of the caboose that are hanging on the end. They'll catch up. You know, it depends how long the train is. You know, it's a 10-mile train. It's a long time before the caboose moves. But we move the engine. Third. Conversion produces transformation. Conversion produces transformation. Let me just take you to um, chapter 2 and verse 10. Paul says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. What good works? What good works has he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them? Well, within the context of this letter, I think that's where we need to begin at least and look for the kinds of good works that, are, that have been prepared beforehand for us. And so here they are. They begin in chapter 4 in verse 1. What is the first good work, right, that has been prepared for us so that we should walk in it? It is unity. It is the unity of the believers. Church unity. That's the good work. And it is work. I'm hard to live with. You've got to work at it. And guess what? You're not so easy to work with, live with either. We have to work at it. It's a Christ-honoring morality. Right? It's a Christ-honoring morality. That's a, those are the good works that have been prepared for us. Like chapter 4, verses 31 and 32, where he says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. Along with all malice, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. That's a good work. It's been prepared for us ahead of time. Or how about verse 29? Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, 
But only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that you will give grace to those who hear. Edifying speech is a good work that has been prepared ahead of time for us. The wise living that he lays out here in chapter 5, verses 15, all the way through chapter 6 and verse 9. All of these relationships and, and the dynamics of those relationships and how we're, as a redeemed people, as a new humanity, we're supposed to live in relation to, to one another, right? All of that is the good works that have been prepared ahead of time for us. We're the new creation. By the power of the indwelling spirit, we can recapture, we can recapture that which was lost in the fall. I mean, just think about this with me, guys. When God uh, approached Adam and said, you know, what is this you've done? What's his response? Chuck his wife under the bus. That's his response, right? It's the woman thou hast given me. Paul says... Husbands, chapter 5, verse 25, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. That is so different. One is kick her to the curb, right? She's the response, you know, hey, my life is messed up and it's all her fault. The other is to die for her. That's transformative. That's otherworldly. That cannot be done. But by the power of the indwelling Spirit of God, and, there, and the Spirit of God only indwells those who have trusted on the Lord Jesus Christ. Conversion produces transformation. Listen, becoming a Christian changes everything. Changes everything. There is not one one area of our lives. There is not one closet, one drawer, one corner, one speck or space in our brain and in our heart that is not under the lordship of Jesus Christ and does not have to change. And it's not going to all change at once. It's a process. And it's a battle. And it's a fight. And it's a work. But praise God. He's committed to us. He loves us. He's poured out his spirit in us. It's what the spirit jealously desires, Paul says in Romans 8, for us. Listen, God is on our side. Conversion produces transformation. Fourth and finally, theology is not just for theologians. Theology is not just for theologians. Yeah, what do I mean by that? Well, what I mean by that is uh, this is one of the deepest, richest, most glorious theological books that we will study. I mean, it rivals Romans, and there were parts of Romans, if you, you know, those of you who are here and you remember, they were rough. They were deep. They were hard. They, you know, had to think. Huh, to think all week. Don't make me think on Sunday. No, we got to think. So as we encounter this, I mean, go back to chapter 1. Take a look. We're only going to be four verses into this, this epistle. And he's going to say, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Stop right there. Okay? Boom! That's in the deep part of the pool. 
That's the deep part of the pool. Yes, we are going to have to come to grips with the reality of God's sovereign choice, his predestinating will, his election, and what it all means and the implications of it all. And there are some today in the Christian church who say that's too hard, that's too divisive, that that's, people don't want to hear that sort of thing. They don't want to think that hard. You're just going to chase them off. But not Foothill, right? Not Foothill. Good. I was getting nervous. I was saying it's going to be me and Carol. She has to be here. Yeah, it's going to be, you know, we're going to have to put on our thinking caps. We're going to have to really pursue the Scriptures together. Because Paul does this to us. Because he loves us. And he realizes, I mean, you know, in the providence of God, that this is, this is what it is. This is glorious to study these things. And you know what else? It's practical. It's like super practical to come to know your God. Not a caricature of who you think God ought to be, but who he is. And you know what? He is deep. He is mysterious. And he is scary. We are drawn to him like a moth to the flame. But sometimes it feels like we might be incinerated. We can't put him in a box. The dangerous illusion of a manageable deity. huh? So the book of Ephesians is going to blow open our heads. We are going to explode together. And it's going to be glorious. It's going to be glorious. Thank you. Somebody thinks that's glorious. I like that. You know, I think about this church, um, Paul writes this letter, this church is only nine years old. It's less than a decade. These believers, if it's truly to the church of Ephesus, so we'll go with that for the moment. If that's true, these people are all drawn out of the occult. I mean, these are like pagans, deeply enmeshed in, in terrible, awful paganism. And they've only been drawn out of it at the most for nine years, and some of them far less than that. And yet when Paul writes, he doesn't write to them, you know, this really thin, you know, self-help kind of thing. Let me give you ten things to do and nine things not to do and how to have a happy marriage and a happy life and whatever. He just says, hey, you know what, husbands? Love your wives like Christ loved the church. Okay? That's what you have to do. Well, that means we have to understand how Christ loved the church, right? If we're going to have any hope, guys. So... Yes, we're in, the, we're in the deep end of the pool because that's what we need. Paul knew that's what they needed. That's what we need too. So I am really, really, really looking forward to beginning to study this book together earnestly. And if you, um, if you think of me and are so inspired to pray for me, you can pray that I'm in, as I'm in the study week in and week out and I'm encountering things that are very, very hard that the Spirit of God would, would do two things in me. Number one, help me to fight laziness so that I stay in the chair until I'm done. And then number two, he would help me to understand what he has written so that I can help you.
Let's pray. Father, thank you for this great, great book. We are excited about this study we will undertake together. We do pray, Father, your spirit would be our final teacher, that he would illumine his word, that we could understand it, and that we could apply it, that we would be changed by it. Oh, Father, do mighty things in our midst in the days to come. We ask for Jesus' sake. Amen. God bless you.